Jeremiah is all about calling a people who have settled, who have stopped following God along this path to fullness. And he's calling them out of that and saying, live in God and live in the now once again. Stop living in the past. Stop fearing for the future. In the Hobbit, this line that Gandalf, the old wizard, tells this crew of dwarves and a hobbit. And as they're about to enter into the wood, Gandalf says one last word to them. He says, be good, take care of yourselves, and don't leave the path. This is B-Sides. I'm Pastor Brandon McCulloch. That was a clip from the last time I taught Jeremiah chapters 2 through 6, five years ago. More on that in a minute. This week, when life falls apart, we will hear four accounts of what it may have been like for Israel to endure the Babylonian invasion. And in between each account, we will also explore the four effects of trauma. Just a note, the accounts may be unsuitable for children. But first, back to Gandalf's advice to stay on the path. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we see that Israel begins by following God. There's this account, almost like a honeymoon. They were his bride and they followed him, Jeremiah 2 verse 2. But then things change. In 2 verse 13, they have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 2.17, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking Yahweh your God when he led you in the way? So they followed him, then they forsook him, and then third, Jeremiah 2 verse 32, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Israel followed God, forsook God, then forgot God. And what happened as a result? Their world fell apart in exile in the Babylonian invasion. And it's the same for us. We may start by following God, but when we start to veer off the path, we forsake him, we forget him, and our world could fall apart. So back now to the clip. We're going to hear what happens when we veer off the path. They are in the woods and, well, they follow the path for the most part. And then they get super hungry and they leave the path in search of food. And it was once they left the path. Once they left the path. That's where we have the scene that gives me shivers every time I think about it. Flies and spiders is what the next chapter is called. And the, the dwarves and the hobbit become flies and they get entangled in the webs of these massive spiders. And they have trouble and woe from there on. And then they finally get to their destination. But all because they left 
the path. Now, Israel, we see here, began with following God along this path. But then somewhere along the way, they strayed from the path and they settled for less than what God was leading them to. Take a look at this in verse 13 of chapter 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils here. One, they forsook God, the fountain of living water. Living water meaning it's always moving, it's always flowing. The spring, it has an abundance of water that doesn't stop. And then second, that they went and made cisterns for themselves, cisterns that didn't even hold water. They were broken. Now, here's the setting in this, in this time. To have a spring of living water was absolutely desired. You could have water bubbling out, and all you have to do is go draw the water, make a well, whatever, and you've got water all the time. If you don't have a spring, then you have to go into the hills where there's limestone. You have to carve deep into the hill and make a little basin within the earth that became a cistern. And then you would plaster the cistern so that the water didn't seep through the limestone and disappear. So you would do all the hard work of digging a cistern, plastering it, and then you'd have to make little tracks to channel the water into the cistern. And so then you were limited to, whenever it rained, uh, the water that was there in that cistern. And you had a limited supply, and that was all you had. Now, what happened, though, was in time, these cisterns didn't last forever. In time, the cisterns began to develop cracks just through aging and, and weathering. And then when the cracks developed, not only were you limited to the water in your cistern, but that water depleted gradually as it seeped through the cracks. So what God is saying about Israel here is they had a source of living water, a fountain where they could always get unlimited water. They turned away from that. They left the path to go and make for themselves cisterns. They had water there. But you see what's happening is it's less than what they could have had. See, there's nothing wrong per se with a cistern. A cistern can give you water. A cistern can support you in life. But the big error of Israel is that they settled for cisterns when God was offering them springs. So Israel is along the path following God. And God's trying to mature them, make them fruitful, and be everything he wants them to be in the world, to be a blessing to the world. But along that way, they saw some limestone and said, Hey, we can make water there. Good enough. Let's stop here. We're tired of walking. And that's the idea, is that Israel settled for cisterns. Settled for less than what God had for them. But sometimes life falls apart and it is not always our fault. Sometimes we are victims of circumstances outside of our control. 
sometimes trauma happens. Whether we are the authors of our misery or the victims of our misery, we all undergo pain and suffering of some sort. Here is the first imaginative account of what Israel may have endured during the Babylonian invasions. I'm reading this right out of the excellent commentary called Jeremiah, Pain and Promise by Kathleen O'Connor. An account from the Asher ben Yaakov family. When the Babylonian army broke through the fortified walls surrounding Jerusalem, the siege of the city had been going on for nearly two years. Hoped for help from Egypt or from anywhere else has not arrived. News recently reached the city that outlying towns to the south were no longer returning signals to the Judean army, so the Babylonian forces were turning their full attention to Jerusalem. For their whole lives, Asher ben Yaakov's family had lived in a two-room house built adjacent to one of the walls of the city that were to protect it from attack. Noises of troop movements and battle preparations disturbed the days and nights in the neighborhood. The Babylonian army was building siege ramps up to the wall of the high-perched city with less and less opposition from the demoralized and exhausted Judean army. But the noise was growing more deafening. Babylonian soldiers were using battering rams to pound against the city wall a short distance from Asher's home. On this summer day in July, 586 BC, Asher did not return from his duties as a guard outside the king's palace. Asher's wife, Penina, was in the house with their five children, Asher's mother, and two female cousins. With no sign of Asher or any other male relative in sight, the woman and children faced the army's onslaught alone. Loud crashing sounds near the wall and fearful screams of neighbors filled Penina with paralyzing fear. The Babylonians must have breached the wall because soldiers were pouring into the street and no Judean defenders were in sight. With the help of her two cousins, she gathered, grabbed, and pushed her five children and mother-in-law out the door and down a path toward her father's house a short distance away. When they got there, her father's household was in chaos. The woman and her elderly father were throwing pieces of fruit and grain into a burlap sack along with a cooking pot. Everyone was shouting at once. Their intent was to run for their lives. Babylonian soldiers with spears and swords were shouting in a foreign language and bashing down doors at the far end of her father's street. Soldiers were invading homes in search of men who might resist them, of booty, and, Penina knew, of women to rape. She ran with members of both households as they scrambled back down alleyways and through neighbors' gardens, trying to stay together and keep track of her children. Terrified neighbors crushed upon them, and an elderly aunt fell in the crowded melee. They lost her in the rush, and Penina soon lost track of her two oldest children among the throngs of people also running to escape the soldiers. Shrieks and confusion built 
as the stampeding crowd grew larger. The two youngest children, an infant and a toddler, had been screaming, but eventually grew quiet from fear and weakness as they made their way out of the city. None of her immediate family had eaten much since the Babylonians made camp outside the city nearly two years earlier. But in the past weeks, the food was cut off completely. Throughout the siege, Asher had been able to supply them with bits of fruit and grain from the palace. But three days earlier, he had come home empty-handed. Food was scarce, even in the king's household. On the road out of the city, Penina's family tried to stay together. Eventually, they made their way north with a stream of refugees to the city of Mizpah and Benjamin. Perhaps it would be safer there, even though they had no family to take them in. Perhaps there would be food, shelter, and less violence. Asher never rejoined his family. Although he was only a soldier, neither royalty nor priesthood, he was a strong man and a potential resistor. When Babylonian soldiers captured him, they executed him on the spot, though Penina and the family would never know what happened to him, nor to her aunt or her two oldest children. So here, the first part of the four effects of trauma. Trauma refers to a deep distress or disturbance. Trauma is the event that creates the deep distress or disturbance. It is not the injuries themselves that we carry. We may not all be sufferers of trauma in a technical sense, but we all do have events that do bring us pain or things that have hurt us and we develop coping methods to go around them. But nonetheless, the readers of Jeremiah's prophecy, the initial readers and the initial hearers of his words, definitely experienced traumatic events. In her excellent book, Pain and Promise, Kathleen O'Connor describes the four effects that trauma brings to us and how Jeremiah addresses these four. So throughout the book, at various points, Jeremiah will touch on these four effects of trauma. Now, please understand that Jeremiah did not necessarily write his book as a handbook for healing from trauma per se, but he does have elements of healing in there. And it seems that part of Jeremiah's ministry, even after he had spoken his prophecies, that the written words were to heal the next generation as Israel went on. And here's the amazing thing we see about Israel, is that despite the trauma they went through, despite the utter destruction of their national identity, of their city, their king, their temple, and despite the severe and deep questions they now had to ask about their God, who is he? Did he fail us? He abandoned us. The nation survived so that by the time of Jesus, there is still a thriving Jewish community that has deep and devoted faith to their God. So Jeremiah may have been one of the primary reasons that this nation, which should have withered and died away, continued to live. 
God uses his prophets, even the ones that aren't popular among the people. So here, as I could not get into detail in the message, here are the four effects of trauma. The first one we covered in the message. The others I only alluded to or didn't mention at all. So effect number one, fragmented memories. One of the things trauma does is that it creates, uh, it disrupts our memory of what happened into splinters was the analogy I'd used. The story that we endured is no longer a story. There's no longer a logical chronology. The events and memories are broken up all over the place. And that's one of the things you see in the actual book of Jeremiah and why sometimes it's hard for us to read. I heard somebody share that it it was Jeremiah is a struggle for them. They have to choose to read it. And I understand because I've been listening through the book and I've been reading passages and it it just doesn't feel like the book has this arc that kind of sticks, right? It doesn't have this narrative arc. It just kind of this happens and that happens and we we jump. We have this temple sermon and then a lot of a lot of prophecy and then we go back to that temple sermon and then over here Jeremiah is in a pit and then we have this king and then that king and then we're back to this king and then back to that king. It's it's a jumbled book because in a way it reflects a mind under trauma. And that what Jeremiah is doing is he's bringing his readers into an active participation where they get to own their story. They get to put their pain within a context by connecting the dots that Jeremiah is pointing out in his book. So that those that have gone through pain get to create a narrative out of what happened. Jeremiah is trying to mend their memories back together. Some of the notes I had written on reading about this is that the experience of trauma uh, uh, fragments in their minds like broken glass. Isn't that interesting? And so imagine looking in a broken mirror, how reality becomes distorted. When you look at the mirror, you get, you get a, a multiplication of images and the shards are cut differently so you don't get a good full picture of things. That's what happens is your identity and your sense of a narrative to life. It's all broken up and it's distorted and you're not getting a true image of who you are and what has happened to you. And a quote from the book, Pain and Promise, people turn off so they can keep going. But afterwards, without warning, fractured memories can return with the force of the original experience. A sound, a smell, a slant of light, or any number of events can trigger them and evoke the whole universe of fear and pain. Too enormous to see all at once. And that's why the memories get fragmented. You, you just cannot hold it all together. But Jeremiah, through a course of reading, is going to help them mend these things back together. And so perhaps you have had things happen and you only remember one little part or you don't like to revisit it because you can't make sense of it. Jeremiah wants to be your guide and God wants to, through this book, help piece these things back together. And so as you read through Jeremiah and find it sometimes confusing and too scattered, realize that it's an invitation to try to connect the dots of life. The Micah Ben Nehor family. Less fortunate than Penina, 
Deborah, wife of Micah, lived in another small house near the market stalls outside the temple where she sold fruit for a rich farmer. Her husband had been killed in the first siege of Jerusalem ten years earlier, and two of her sons had been taken away by the king's men to serve in the army. Now, Babylonian soldiers surrounded the temple. They set it on fire along with the outbuildings and small businesses around it. Deborah escaped the burning neighborhood with four children and some neighbors and found a temporary hiding place in a shed for animals at the large estate that belonged to a wealthy, influential family. They were hiding there only a few hours when Babylonian soldiers came to the big house and began dragging out the occupants. Deborah and the children had to flee again. A good distance away, they found refuge in a small cave in a hillside where other people were also hiding, including a few more of her stunned neighbors. When the city grew quiet some days later, she and three others slipped out in search of food. As they surveyed the ruined streets, they feared further violence from bands of Babylonian soldiers guarding the city, but hunger, the children's and their own, forced them forward. What they found was a landscape of destruction. Streets were unrecognizable, filled with stony rubble from destroyed buildings. Corpses of citizens lay unburied, and animals and birds seemed to have disappeared completely. They began searching for food in the half-standing buildings, desperate for anything to bring back to feed the children. They met others also ransacking empty, half-destroyed buildings for food or for valuables to trade. Deborah became obsessively focused on accumulating whatever she could carry. She and a few companions hobbled back to the cave and managed to hide with the children for several weeks, making four ways into the devastated streets only late at night. When the turmoil in the city began to diminish, some of the cave dwellers set out in search of a place to live. They came to the house of the wealthy family where Deborah and her children had first hidden and found it empty, except for a few old indentured servants who now lived in the big house. With some of their loot, they were able to bribe the servants for fruit from the scraggly trees in the garden and for shelter in the shed now empty of animals. Deborah's children were hungry all the time. Her two young sons went to gather wood and her daughter to draw water from a nearby well, but other Judeans were demanding payment for these basics of survival. Rumors reached them daily of girls being raped and of young men being rounded up and forced to grind grain or carry wood and water. Three of Deborah's children watched as soldiers hung two Judean princes by their hands. Her youngest son and her daughter now sat in the corner. They stopped talking. Life was a misery and survival a daily challenge. She could not pray nor even weep. Nothing made any sense. The second effect of trauma is the breakdown of language. 
You see this in the book of Job, for instance. Job starts to say things that he probably wouldn't say under normal circumstances. We want to accuse God. We want to accuse others. We say things that just are raw and emotional and hurtful even for some people to hear. Job said, the man, the words of a man in despair are like wind. His point is you can't always take them seriously. And so we can't always correct that kind of language. But, but the trauma sufferer also sometimes doesn't know how to find words. They're reduced to this like pre-language state of groans and screams. And there just isn't language. You hear this in people when they say what happened was beyond words. And, and they are reduced to just basically saying cliches about what happened. It was horrible. It was hell. It was, you know, they, they don't have words because there can be an overload and you just don't know that there are words that you use in everyday language. This wasn't an everyday experience. So there's no connect. One of the interesting things is I heard an interview with, um, Bezel van der Kolk and he wrote this, um, magnificent book called the body keeps the score and he studies brain trauma. Um, one of the things he said in an interview is that there are two parts of the human brain that don't always talk to each other. They're really quite separate, he says. Uh, the first part he calls the animal brain. The second part he calls the rational brain. Now, the animal brain is the part of basic biological function. It tells you to go to sleep. It makes you hunger. It's what causes you to want to have sex. Just all those basic biological survival functions but then you have the rational brain, which is the part that helps us to get along with others in civility. <laughs> we can speak rationally and reasonably with one another and treat each other like civil adults. <laughs> but what he said, and I'm quoting him, was really interesting. He said, the more upset we are, the more we shut down the rational part of our brain. The more upset we are, the more we shut down the rational part of our brain. Or in other words, the more we go into the animal part of our brain. And this makes a lot of sense that when we get really upset, we really get into more of like survival mode. And we hear this when people bring up controversial issues or political concerns is we're not actually listening to each other. We're all trying to yell our opinions across one another. Why? Because we get really upset and worked up and emotionally uptight about some of these issues. And so we're actually no longer using our rational brain, which teaches, which leads us to reasonably get along with each other in civility. And instead we're going to animal mode, attack mode, defense mode, survival mode. And this can happen in trauma is that we lose the ability to find words. So one of the things we see Jeremiah do, especially in the war poems that we covered in chapters four through six, is he evokes vivid imagery and he recalls sounds, things that go beyond words that the readers can experience, but in doses, right? Re-experience some of the horrors, but only in these short snippets of a few lines of poetry so that they have a chance to breathe and recover. One of the things that Jeremiah is a prophet and the word of God can do is help us to recover language for something that was too horrific for words to find. And it's interesting when we look at how God created the heavens and the earth, he did so with words. There was something gloomy and dark in the beginning, but he speaks. And all of that is restructured and it's put into order and it's put into place and then life can thrive. One of the things we need is to hear the words of our spiritual guides like Jeremiah. 
and like the word of God. Because his word can bring order to a life that has lost language. Language is an order. You have the alphabet and you can just put letters randomly together, but it doesn't make any sense. No meaning comes out of it. But when you have some rules like grammar, like language, that can put these letters in order, it forms words, and then you put these words in order, and it forms sentences, and you put these sentences together, and it forms ideas, and it forms meaning. This is what Jeremiah wants to help his readers accomplish, is finding meaning in what they experienced, so that when the fragmented memories can be put together in a narrative, the narrative can then teach the meaning, and the meaning can give them words. So yes, sometimes there are wounds without words. We don't always have words for what happens, but the word of God wants to give us words so we can gradually heal. This is why you went through this. This is what I'm doing. And of course, we're looking forward to when Jeremiah says the famous words, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans of peace and prosperity, a future and a hope. Oh, sufferers, I still have my hand on you. The Noach Ben Amos family. Noach and his extended family used to live in the big house where Deborah, her children, and their new companions came to find shelter. Noach was a servant of the king a highly placed officer in charge of the treasury and an overseer of tax collections. Although his position afforded his family many privileges and a wealthy way of life, he greatly disliked what it required of him. Palace intrigues made a situation precarious and left him guarded and suspicious of everyone around him. And he had to extract taxes from the people. His neighbors hated him for the strenuous collection tactics he oversaw in the city, as greater and greater amounts of the harvests, their animals, and their treasure were demanded or taken forcibly from them. For decades, the Judean kings were compelled to pay increasingly high tribute, first to Assyria, then Egypt, and now to Babylon. According to one of Noach's fellow court officers, The king's decision to stop paying tribute probably precipitated the invasions by the Babylonian army to attack them in the first place. But the people and the land had already been wrung dry under the tax system. Now, Noach, his wife Abigail, their four teenage sons, three younger daughters, two elderly parents, and numerous cousins were being herded off with other families of the king's officers and priests who had survived the invasion. Babylonian soldiers treated them like cattle. They cut off their hair, stripped some of them, shackled them together, and forced them to march while they insulted them and threatened them with whips. They had not gone far when Noach's father fell, and a soldier killed him for hindering the march. The walking was strenuous, and even for the most able-bodied, the physical discomfort was enormous, and the shame beyond bearing. These once powerful families, along with some of the king's relatives and friends, were being marched around the Fertile Crescent to Babylon, where, if they survived, they would be sent to labor in the fields or to work in the cities. Survival seemed unlikely. Unlikely. 
A third effect of trauma is that we choose to shut down and we become numb. The hurt is too horrific. Now, this is a survival technique to stop feeling. Otherwise, we may not survive. But somewhere along the road, we have to reopen those feelings because emotions cannot operate on a switch. You cannot just say, I want to turn off these emotions without affecting all your emotions, right? There really isn't such thing as negative emotions and positive emotions, the way we like to think about it. Sorrow is a negative and happiness is a positive. Really, all emotions are there for a reason and they're all good because uh, so-called negative emotions are really warning signals that something isn't right. And so they're actually trying to point us in a positive direction. But we think we should shut these down and then we actually can shut down living entirely. We can move through life like a zombie. We lose the ability how to cry. We lose the ability to laugh, to fully live and enjoy life. One of the things we see in Jesus is that he had the full spectrum of emotions. And one of the most famous verses in the Bible is that Jesus wept. And so... Yes, there's a moment when we do need to shut down to survive, but we must reopen up. We must come back to life. And so one of the things that we see in Jeremiah is we see things like anger and grief. We see raw emotion expressed because Jeremiah wants to help get like the second effect. You lose language. He wants to give words to the feelings they've stopped feeling. He wants to help us to feel again so that we can then work through these emotions. And then these emotions can go in their proper place. And we can once again have a balanced emotional well-being. One of the ways to regain our feelings is to put the body into action. And that's actually something that Jeremiah does in chapter 3, starting in verse 22. He starts to give them a series of actions that they can accomplish. And he's, he's telling this to the readers, like, look, you saw what your fathers and mothers did. Well, now here's your set of actions. Here's how to come back to me, God says. So in 3.22, Jeremiah says, return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, now this is Israel speaking in response to God. They say, behold, we come to you for you are Yahweh, our God. See, there's an action. They get to get up and move their body. And then they admit, truly, the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains. Truly, Yahweh, our God is the salvation of Israel. So Israel's waking up to something, right? God calls them to action. They're acting and now they're coming alive. They're coming to their senses. They're starting to see things. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and action getting down, but also getting in touch with that emotion, shame. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against Yahweh our God. We and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God. And so there is a call to action. It's almost, it's, it's God says, come and they come. There's a response. God speaks and they respond. This is part of awakening our feelings once again. It's getting back in touch with the fact that we are embodied human beings. And that's one of the things that the studies say is that when you, when you suffer trauma, you can actually lose touch of your body. And so, um, God's calling them into action and there are different, um, 
physical exercises that um, um, therapists can take you through to get you back in touch. Uh, but very simply, one of the things that we see happening um, is in disaster, you see people rise up to serve to serve one another, to meet each other's needs. And this is actually incredibly important because as Bezel van der Kolk said, that we have stress hormones that are elevated when we are in great distress. And the stress hormones are necessary because they're what give us the energy to move forward. But when you're trapped and you feel like you can't get out of your distress, then the stress hormones get suppressed They need to be discharged, but if they don't get discharged, that is where damage can happen. So you need to move your body and reclaim some of your autonomy over it, discharge some of those uh, stress hormones. So when we see acts of service and reaching out to help people who are in need, these are ways that communities heal. Your body, what happens is your body is reset, he says, to interpret the world as a terrifying place and you're not safe in it. Your body is recalibrated to interpret the world as terrifying. That is a hard place to be. So Jeremiah wants to call his readers to action so that the body can now be doing something safe. The body can do something that they trust once again. And the body no longer has to live assuming everything's terrifying. But there is safety. Life will not always be like the Babylonian invasion. The Eli Ben Levi family. Among the deportees was a priest named Eli and his family. Eli was relieved that some of his priestly brothers seemed to have eluded the soldiers, or at least he hoped that was what their absence meant. But he was devastated by the violence he had witnessed. He felt as if he were going crazy. Even though he had long expected the triumph of the invaders over the rabble that was left to defend Jerusalem, he could not believe it was actually happening that the Babylonians had dared enter the holy city of God and destroy God's temple outraged him. How could this happen? How could the temple built by Solomon, the place where God promised to live with them forever, be burned to the ground by these barbaric heathen? He had no words for this unspeakable indignity to his people and to their God. Watching the temple invaded by foreigners was like witnessing a rape. Seeing the blood of his fellow priests spilled in the sacred place was a pollution and an abomination. Where was their God? The fourth effect of trauma is the loss of faith. And this, Jeremiah, definitely helps the community recover from. I mean, can you imagine? Israel believed that the temple would never fall, that their king would rule and reign forever, that God was on their side. And then to find out that he wasn't, 
or that he let them fall, or that he broke his promises of eternal, of the kingdom going forever. Yeah, that could rock your faith. Now, that's not to say that Israel had the right beliefs and all that, and that's something that we will address in the upcoming message. But um, it does point out the fact that views of God that we hold get shattered in disaster and trauma. And sometimes that's healthy because we need to recalibrate a, a proper view of God. And that's one of the things that pain and suffering actually do is they help us see God more realistically as he is. But there's also a very real danger of completely losing faith. How could a good God and all those things that you hear? God has abandoned us. Where is he? Doesn't he love us? So our worldview and our beliefs shatter just like our world. Jeremiah really comes along here and helps the people to see, look, God warned us about this. This is actually a result of our sin. God didn't fail us. God is actually trying to purge us from this great evil. And while at times he can oversimplify and say, it's your fault, Israel, that this has come upon you. And while that may not always help heal you by saying, it's your fault, uh, but it does give them a sense of ownership over what happened. And, oh, if we brought this upon ourselves, we know how to move forward. And, oh, God hasn't abandoned us. He's actually doing what he always said he would do if we didn't follow his ways. And so, yes, there's other complicated scenarios. There's political things like Babylon and and the reason that they came down, all these things. Like, yeah, there's those things there too. But one of the things that Jeremiah does is tries to get the people to see we still need God. He didn't fail us. He's trying to wake us up so that we can return to who he really is and not our fanciful imaginations about who we want him to be. So a danger in trauma could be a loss of faith, but Jeremiah becomes a great guide in restoring our faith in a God who, once again, knows the plans that he has for us and wants us to prosper. That concludes this week's episode. If you have a story, a question, a topic that you want to hear on this, please contact me at brandonmcculloch at calvarychapel.com as spelled in the notes of this podcast. And as always, this is Pastor Brandon with grace and gratitude. Thanks for listening.